Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that is starting its third episode about fascism by country and still has the whole world to go. I know. Today we have Walida, Zoe, and Kellen. Uh, We're continuing our series on global fascism with each episode focusing on a different country. We've had an introductory episode uh, where we just talked about global fascism in general, an episode on Brazil, and now this one on the good old USA. (laughs) Just a reminder, as always, uh, to reach out to us if you have recommendations for countries we should cover or any guests, uh, etc. Any help with this series, we greatly appreciate because we have the whole globe to work on. great land of ours, we couldn't have a three-tiered school system, a black school and a white school and an integrated school and give everyone their choice. We would have much less dissension, we would have much less racial problems in the schools, and if those people that are are seeking to integrate the races in this country really were were seeking to do the best for both races, they would adopt this system. We believe in God, we believe in the United States of America, and we believe that God has commanded us to separate ourselves from other races. They want to throw white children and colored children into the melting pot of integration, throughout of which will come a conglomerated, bladder, mongrel class of people. Thank you has rights in this country. He should have equal rights, but separate rights. It's worked for 100 years in the South, and I think it will work now. But if you was the nicest fella in the world, and and Lyndon Johnson said, I had to associate with you every day, I'd tell Lyndon Johnson to go straight to hell, because I would not associate with you. Well, where do you think the money is coming from behind the civil rights movement? From the Communist Party, from the Zionist Christ-killing Jews. The legacy of the German-American Bund is that America works that there is room here to be everything good, bad, or indifferent. In the years leading to the war, the boon capitalized on the tolerance of American democracy. Unfortunately, Ambria couldn't join us today, but she left us this good definition of white nationalism, which we're going to start off with. Uh, White nationalists want a white ethnostate, and fascism is inherent in any ethnostate. No state is ethnically pure. Therefore, to create an ethnostate, some residents must be elevated in status above others to expel, control, and disenfranchise, or even kill the rest, quote-unquote, legally. So democracy is out for this process, and violence must be used to overcome resistance to the creation of an institutionalized racial or ethnic hierarchy. According to white nationalists in the U.S., this has to be done here because white people are becoming victimized because they are allegedly losing their right their rightful status of supremacy. This is also tied up with heteronormativity and anti-Semitism. Hmm, poor white people. (laughs) Right. So to sort of expand on that, fascism is a system of government that relies on centralized power strong enough to crush opposition. So in theory, in a fascist system, you have a powerful or dictatorial, dictatorial head of state with a lot of control over the economy, which is still, I think, um, supposed to be like a capitalist wage labor system, but with a lot of direction or intervention from the state. Um, Under the system, the economy is used to further national goals, which include economic self-sufficiency, which is sort of where you see protectionism come in in um, talking about fascism, and also frequently a kind of social welfare system for the people who are the like, quote unquote, authentic members of the nation state. 
the power of the state, as Ambria's, you know, um, definition or whatever suggested, is also marshaled towards the extermination or the expulsion of the non-member groups. Um, non-memberhood, if that's a term, has um, traditionally been viewed in these systems um, in ethnic or racial terms, um, just as nationalism is often cast in ethnic or racial terms. And again, fascism is deeply tied to the nation state form. Um, Ambria also brought up heteronormativity. One of fascism's goals is the reproduction of the nation, which relies on the reproduction of the nuclear family and requires women to be conscripted into motherhood. So in this schema, there's no place for homosexuality or gender nonconformity, and there's equally no place for people with disabilities. All of this um, will probably sound familiar to people who've read up about the Holocaust, as many of Hitler's earliest victims were seen as sexual deviants or in some way disabled. But of course, and this is important for our purposes, just as you can be a socialist without living in a socialist society, being a fascist doesn't mean that you live in an autocratic fascist regime necessarily. So the people who consider themselves fascists in America today, or people who we might say are fascists, are the people who seek to create or move toward this kind of system. And that's why white nationalism in its modern Trumpian form might accurately be described as fascist. Um, thinking about fascism in this way can also help explain why you have these modern white supremacists like Richard Spencer who are openly supportive of Israel. As Ambria's definition mentioned, white supremacy and, and fascism often has uh, anti-Semitic aspects to it. Um, Israel is becoming or trying to become or is, uh, however you want to look at it, an ethnostate. That's the ostensible end goal of the apartheid in Palestine. And Spencer... Uh, Richard Spencer and his ilk, like we've said, they believe in ethnostates, Europe for the whites, whatever white is, ever, not everybody agrees on that, um, even within the movement, Israel for the Jews, Africa for the Africans, etc. And then once we have ethnostates, I guess it's like fair game for them to go to war with each other over territory because a fundamental <laughs> part of fascism is the reproduction of, and expansion of the homeland. But anyway, all of this is to say there is this like perverse but actually kind of clear reason for even anti-Semitic white supremacist fascists in America to, at least in the short term, um, admire and even emulate the Jewish state of Israel. It's a weird world we live in. It is a very weird world. I like, like, what do they imagine will happen? Everybody goes back to their little bordered ethno states nicely and cleanly. And now we're all nicely separated by color. Uh, and then everything will be fine. Yeah, well, that sounds... <laughs> then then they can, I think... I mean, I, I do think that the end goal is, like, it's a little, like, wink-wink to be like, oh, you know, everybody should have their own ethnostates. We don't hate right. black people. They should just be in Africa. But, like, the world that they envision is one in which, um, you know, the global south is still exploited for natural resources. Um, right. And, you know, they're end goal may be a like return of like outright colonialism or perhaps like the total you know extinction of the you know non-white people although i think a lot of them who are thinking about these kinds of things recognize that there needs to be for their purposes sort of a global underclass that's doing like menial labor and resource sure. extraction so sure yeah it's convenient to have basically, you know, to have brown people ghettoized in parts of the world. Um, 
and I think there's also something else that's important to think about is like the climate aspect of this, because a lot of people do realize that climate change is a thing that's happening. And, you know, people say stuff like, well, the United States isn't preparing for climate change. But I think, Walida, you've talked about this, too. Like, there is the U.S. is preparing for climate change. Like, our border policies are our preparation for climate change. Oh, yeah. You know? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's that whole aspect of, like, eco-fascism, which is... Um, you know, open recognition of the way that the world is changing and the climate is changing and resource hoarding and preparation for resource hoarding, you know, preparation for water wars, preparation for like massive displacement of literally billions of people once huge swaths of the world become unlivable. Um, That sort of thing is also like the fascists are getting ready for that, you know? Yeah. Well, they're in for a surprise when they realize the food chain is also disrupted and there's no more anything to eat. Um, yeah, I was also just thinking about the ethno states. Like, it's so, I can't think of really a better word to use besides dumb, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, like, you know, white people and the, the colonizing powers brought all the people here from. Africa and like all the black and brown people to the US for their benefit. And now that they're, you know, no demanding longer... to be treated like people. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, oh, actually, never go back. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't. You've outlived your usefulness. It's like, okay, you, like <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. thinking about how they first disrupted the whole world. And now we're like, actually, we thought this was going to benefit us differently. We don't want this anymore. Yeah. And I, yeah. that's one of the reasons that like, the you know because like once you start to pull at this tapestry it unravels very quickly sort of in a lot from a logical perspective but that's one of the reasons that like this like liberal tendency to be like oh if we just debate the fascists like then that like that's all we need to do and it's like no like just pointing out like that they're what they're saying doesn't actually make a whole lot of logical sense that doesn't accomplish anything it doesn't matter to them like it, it, you know like what Zoe what you were just saying like well you know y- white people brought africans to this continent as slaves those were the first black people here like doesn't that say something about how we should relate to each other now? And the, the answer is like, we don't care about that. The facts don't matter. It's ironic that their thing is like facts, not feelings, but like facts don't really matter. And so having a debate is not helpful or useful. The liberal tendency to be like, oh, look at this, this hypocrisy or whatever. Also like not particularly helpful or useful when you're dealing with these people. What matters is <laughs> power, you know, right. and right, making yeah. sure that they don't have it. Um, and in our like marketplace of ideas system, that's not, that's not something that the marketplace of ideas is like equipped to deal with really. It is. And one of the, one of the videos, um, one of the many clan videos, uh, I watched to prepare for this episode, (laughs) um, there were historians like 40, 50 years ago, these are like black and white videos showing like clan members. And one of the things, one of the narrators said was, um, Oh, yeah. Basically, these white supremacists used the liberal notion of freedom of speech mm-hmm. to, like, spread their hateful ideology and claim, you know, oh, my freedom of speech is being violated if anyone dare try to shut them up. So this is like something they do. Absolutely. Right? They, they, they use the liberal democratic process to choke it to death exactly. and then wield the power that they build from it. Yeah. 
It's like, that's why, you know, the ACLU um, is out there, like, defending Klan members' right to speak and to march. Um, that's, that, they know that, they use that. And it's it's also, like, it's such a, like, a trope, but it's true. Like, Hitler came to power in Germany democratically. All of that yeah. happened within, like, a democratic framework. Um, right. And the, like, attempts by the centrist sort of forces in the German democracy at the time were like, well, you know, if we, if we, we, we make him chancellor, but we'll, we'll do it in a coalition, we can like limit his power. Um, and, you know, people will see that, you know, he might have some good ideas, but he goes too far or whatever. And right. this, it just doesn't work. That's not, that's not how you deal with fascism. No. Yeah, well, in talking with how Hitler rose into democracy, like, the other, you know, major lib argument of, like, the system is broken. The system is as the system does, and it was created mm-hmm. by a room of white men, and I think it's doing exactly what they wanted it yeah. to do. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. is yeah, what yeah. the system was created for. It's not broken. It's working as, working as, as was intended. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so to give a little background on fascism throughout uh, the recent history here in the U.S. Um, let's start with the interwar period between World Wars, the World Wars One and Two, um, because there was a rise in like leftist movements and communism um, and union activism. There was also, in response to that, uh, rise in fascism right here in the U.S. We rarely hear American fascism together in like a historical context. And it's generally because we don't call our fascist movements fascist. <laughs> um, it's really weird, but there's there's reasons why. They're not good reasons, but they exist. So Robert Paxton, uh, a scholar on fascism, he talks about the process of fascism, like how it grows, how it builds and exercises power over time. And that in order to do so, in order to gain uh, sort of popular support, um, they seek to appear indigenous, mm-hmm. uh, nationalist, right? So Mussolini and Hitler didn't do things that were foreign seeming, you know, for example, when they, when choosing their symbols or their rhetoric or the things they talked about were very, you know, Hitler talked about very German things, a return to like German, uh, culture and German history. And the same thing with Mussolini. And of course we see that here as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this this sort of is a useful contrast with the way that, um, and we talked about this most recently in our Silent Sam episode, the way that like every effort is made by reactionary forces to paint leftism in sort of whatever flavor, whether, you, whether you're talking about communists, socialists, sort of anti-racist activists, or, um, you know, the Bolshevists as Yeah, as the the Nazi, the Nazis would say that the Bolsheviks, the rising tide of Bolshevism that they were trying to fight, um, all of that is painted as a product of foreign influence. Right, right. And in the U.S., the indigenous symbols of fascism become our indigenous, like, national symbols like the confederate flag mm-hmm. right that's like the thing where they, that they cling to or like old glory you know apple pie like all these things that are extremely and very specifically american mm-hmm. so like people who fly the confederate flag might not see it that way um you know if you tell them that they're fascist they'll be like what are you talking about but when that fascistic sentiment of nationalism 
and ethnic purity is expressed in the U.S., it is expressed through Confederate mm -hmm. symbols generally and Protestant Christianity. It's also a symbol for this native or indigenous Americanism. Um, and keep in mind, I'm using indigenous in the like white supremacist context where they think they're the indigenous people, right? Like this country was like given to them by divine right. Um, that's how they see themselves. So, you know, because of this, there were racist, nationalist and anti-Semitic, anti-Catholic American political leaders and groups who explicitly denied being fascist, despite generally fitting the criteria, like literally by definition, because it was a European tradition oh. and not an American one. Oh, well. um, yeah. Like for us, we say, yeah, we're socialists, we're communists, we're Marxists, whatever it is, because we are globalists and we do see this as one planet of, of everybody sort of humanity as one group that needs to work together to produce for with and for each other, whereas they very specifically are the opposite, right? So in their minds, Europeans can be fascist, you know, and so Americans can't be. It isn't our ideology. It isn't a homegrown thing. So it's foreign and we reject it. Now, we see these threads throughout American history, although American fascism has really been called that, at least in scholarship. But let's go through some of these movements. So during the interwar period of the 1930s and 40s, we have Alvin Owsley, the national commander of the American Legion. So the American Legion is like this, for people that don't know, it's like this association of veterans, of people who have seen combat. It was founded in 1919 in Paris, um, and it's it's head, um, this guy named Alvin Owsley, he, he was, he once said of the Legion, should the day ever come when they, meaning the Reds, meaning the communists, menace the freedom of our representative government, the Legion would not hesitate to take things into its own hands to fight the Reds as the fascisti of Italy fought them. The fascisti are to Italy what the American Legion is to the United States, and that Mussolini, the new premier, was the commander of the Legion, the ex-servicemen of Italy. So he went actually... He invited Mussolini to speak at one of their conventions in San Francisco, like sometime in the in the 1920s. Love but it. He, yeah, he would never have called himself a, like a fascist. To him, it was like, well, we're the American version of it, but it's something different. Um, the Black Legion was another group uh, concentrated mostly in the Midwest, mostly throughout the 1930s and 40s. And they were a group so fanatical, they actually split off from the KKK. They were event they were initially part of the KKK. I think they were like they acted like the security of the KKK. So they were the guys that like went around at night um, and made sure clan members were safe or whatever they did. Um, you know, they hated all the usual groups, you know, black people, Catholics, immigrants, they hated labor unions and so on. Um, the Christian Nationalist Crusade was also operating during this period. Uh, it was a bit smaller, but again the same set of enemies in their mind. Um, in 1933, a previously underground fascist group called the Silver Shirts, who were modeled after Hitler's brown shirts, like they literally wore silver shirts and blue ties, um, came above ground as a political group. And its leader actually ran on a third party ticket for president in 1936. So we actually had like basically a neo-Nazi, not even a neo-Nazi back then, a Nazi <laughs> for president, like as Hitler was, you know, the head of state in Germany. Um, you know, they were racist, anti-Jewish, white supremacist, anti-Catholic, the whole deal. Um, and the only reason their headquarters were raided and shut down was because Nazi Germany declared war in America after Pearl Harbor. So they're like, oh, well, now you're part of the enemy group. So we're going to shut your, shut your stuff down. Um, 
frankly, even during the 19th century, there were fascist-like groups popping up in the U.S. as a response to German and Irish immigration and an internal migration of Southern blacks moving to Northern cities. So, you know, fascism comes from the Italian group. So they wouldn't have used that word, but their sentiments and their opinions and like all their actions and everything they did were quite fascistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and speaking about like the, the interwar period, um, I think there are a couple of other groups which are worth noting talking about that are more directly linked to um, like fascism in the um, the European context. And a lot of that is, is coming from this, again, sort of nation state mindset and very like, quote unquote, ethnic, like ethnicity driven mindset. So Walida mentions um, German immigrants to the United States in the 19th century. The early 20th century also had a lot of immigration from Italy. And um, these sort of immigrants, first, second generation Americans of German and Italian descent were um, a, a big sort of component of these like fascist outposts in the United States. So one group that was popular was the Fascist League of North America, which was um, mainly Italian-American group that promoted fascism. And then there was also the German-American Bund, um, which was an official outpost of the German Nazi Party in the United States. And was the um, admission was only open to uh, Americans of um, German heritage. So the Bund was partly this like German pride organization, and it appealed, as I was saying, to people whose parents or grandparents had been immigrants to the United States and who had who had actually been targeted, like Walida was just describing, by hate in their early days. Um, but it was also very openly tied to the Nazi Party. So in like the early days, um, in like the mid nineteen mid to late nineteen thirties, there was before before you have. Um, uh, Germany going into, you know, um, take going to war in Poland, um, people are pretty, like, out and open with their Bund membership. There's these, like, they held massive parades, including, like, through the streets of New York City. They bought up a ton of land for summer camps, um, which were, <laughs> of course, like, youth indoctrination and paramilitary training camps all over the country, like, from New Jersey all the way out to Wisconsin. Um, and Probably the most famous thing that the Bund did did was this um, massive rally at Madison Square Garden. Um, And some people may have seen actually footage of this event because it's been circulating online recently because of a short film that um, this guy Michael Curry released last year. Google it for sure if you have the time because it's it's just absolutely striking. 20,000 white Americans, mostly Germans, men and women, which I think is important to note, are all gathered together doing the like Hitler salute in Madison square garden in 1939. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah. t- it's, telling- I saw a YouTube video of this. Um, yeah. And you weren't, you're not kidding. The, like it's, he's up there on the stage and he's going in his thick German accent saying, well, the media has described me as like a hooved beast with mm-hmm. tail and horns, but here I am. And like just thousands of people cheering and doing the Nazi salute until the r- stage is rushed by, someone there's a and, protester yeah <laughs> there's who, a like, protester that tries to rush, rush the stage and then yeah. gets like clobbered by the security forces there and you know the people in the audience are just like losing their shit because it's like yeah. this is what you like this is what you want you you don't go to a nazi rally and just be like man i hope nobody gets hurt it's like yes bloodlust <laughs> <laughs> uh jesus 
I also, I think it's telling too, um, like how the, the rally was advertised. So I saw a poster for it as I was like reading up before this, um, this episode. And this poster had this picture of a white man in front of um, an American flag. And uh, the poster said, pro-America rally, mass demonstration for true Americanism. February 20th, 1939, Madison Square Garden, German American Bund. Mm-hmm. Um, and yep, it is, it's America really interesting. Great again. it's really interesting to see how you also have this whole thing going on here with german americans sort of integrating themselves into american whiteness the sort of american national character claiming um both germanness and americanness and reconciling that which a lot of people would have said that in addition to their catholicism um would have made them sort of exiles from this in-group claiming whiteness as the thing that unites them in both of those categories. Um, and uh, that's sort of trying to make actual Nazism, um, fascism palatable in the, like, in a pure American sense. Um, and the Bund isn't, like, alone in using that language, centering, like, the American nation state. We also had, um, in the 30s, the um, America First League, which... Um, argued for non-intervention once um, war broke out in Europe in 1939. Uh, And it had a lot of Nazi sympathizers. Um, Most Americans, and this might seem counterintuitive since they're saying, like, let's not get involved in the war, but most white Americans who took a side in the first days of war in Europe were pro-Britain, while ethnic Germans and Italians, sort of as we've been talking about, often supported their homelands. Um, And the America First League represented this realization that, like, if the U.S. is going to get involved, it's going to be with the allies and against the fascists. So the best thing that we can hope for is that the U.S. doesn't get involved at all. Um, You might remember, if your brain stretches back that far to 2016, some people being shocked that Trump used America First as a catchphrase during the campaign, given its obvious links to Nazi sympathizers. Um, If I'm remembering correctly, I think it was Bannon or maybe Stephen Miller who suggested the term to him, Um, like one of the white supremacist guys on his team. Uh, Feel free to fact check me on that one. Anyway... (laughs) Maybe, yeah, I mean, that's just like a whole other thing, truthfully, that Trump is, anyway, not even going to get into it. It's fine. He's still using that term. We're all not batting an eye about it. Um, Going back to the original America First, probably the most famous America Firster was Charles Lindbergh, um, the famous pilot. And he was like out there arguing in 1939 that Britain and France shouldn't fight Germany as Germany's like starting to take over huge chunks of Central Europe. Um, and that uh, Europe, white Europe as a whole, should just work together against what he called Asiatic communism. Um, and even after France and Britain joined the war, he was like, Lindbergh was like out there arguing on the radio in front of Congress. And again, in front of sold out Madison Square Garden crowds, what is it with Nazis in Madison Square Garden, that the United <laughs> States should not engage and should actually sign a neutrality pact with Germany. And, like, Mm -hmm. either keep selling arms to everyone or sell them to no one instead of the, like, preferential lend-lease program that gave the Allies um, arms and wouldn't sell them to Germans. Um, And then finally, you also had these, like, major political figures who weren't necessarily associated with these groups in the United States 
um, who were also calling for support for the German and Italian and even Japanese regimes, actually. So one of them is, is Charles Coughlin, or as I like to call him, the Alex Jones of the 1930s. Um, <laughs> that is extremely accurate. <laughs> Um, so Father Coughlin, as he was known, was a Catholic priest based in Michigan who had a popular radio show. He had, like, at its peak, I think, 30 million weekly li- listeners. Um, so he's actually much more popular than Alex Jones could ever hope to be. Um, and he used that pulpit, which is a pun, to blast out anti-Semitic conspiracy theories um, that had become, like, the official line of the German state. Like, the idea that Jewish people are cons- controlling the world's banking system, stuff like that. But he also, and I I think this is a really important point, um, had a critique of capitalism. Um, So by his logic, and I'm simplifying a bit, but this is the gist, Jewish bankers were hoarding wealth. A few Christian Americans were becoming wealthy, but the rest, especially after the stock market crash in 1929, were poor. And these American, the poor Americans, white Americans, always white Americans, were increasingly looking to communism, which is the ultimate evil, obviously. Um, fascism offered an economic system with a safety net for the racial in-groups and exploitation or genocide for the out-groups, um, while much of the, ca- the rest of the capitalist system remained in place. So I think through, especially through Father Coughlin, we can really see how um, the like economic turmoil of the, the Depression era created um, this desire for an alternate system and how fascism very quickly filled in that vacuum. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, anti-Semitism has always been a lot more prevalent in the U.S. than uh, people think or address. Mm. Like, now that we see this rise of anti-Semitism, uh, anti- uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> acts of anti-Semitism, um, people are like, oh, it's like Nazi Germany. But we've had that in the U.S. all along. Um, my mom's side of the family came to the U.S. from Eastern Europe prior to the Holocaust when things just, like, anti-Semitism started to be on the rise and they were like, we're actually going to get out of here. This seems bad. Mm. Um, and so they had a roundabout journey, but they ended up in the U.S., which was, you know, painted as like this safe haven for people of different religions, uh, which was in theory how the U.S. was founded. Mm. Um, but so my mom and I didn't know about this until more recently because uh, she wouldn't talk about it. But my mom grew up in in Philly and um, they had they were the only Jewish family in their neighborhood and they had like rocks thrown at them. People would put swastikas on their um, lawn Jesus. like my uncles got beat up for it. Um, I believe at one point that's why I had to switch schools. It's kind of ambivalent um, because it's obviously a very like deep and touchy subject. Um, but like it's something I could always sense growing up. Like my mom was very um, anxious about like make sure all the doors are locked, all the windows are closed. Like it was always like I could sense that there was this like kind of deep trauma and anxiety. But it's only recently that I've been learning more about that. But that's also very entwined in the U.S. and like allowing people to come here technically, but then not making anyone like welcome or safe in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's it's well known at this point, but um, during during the Holocaust, the United States turned away boats of Jews fleeing Europe um, and uh, sent many people back to their deaths. Um, Yeah. And I actually wouldn't do that. (laughs) We're going (laughs) to 
talk about education later, but I remember learning that like, oh, the U.S. didn't know it was happening. The rest of the world didn't know because like, you know, there wasn't the Internet yet. News didn't travel quickly. Mm. Um, and like, that's what sure, I sure grew up did, thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, of course. But yeah. that was how it was taught to me, at least when I was younger. And because I went to a school district with a lot of Jewish people and because I also additionally went to Hebrew school, like I learned about the Holocaust multiple times a year, mm. um, but never fully. <laughs> Well, the the way we're taught it was like suddenly this bad man took control and started murdering like political opponents and and all the Jews of Germany and it's like well, it, it wasn't overnight. It happened yeah. over a very long time. The whole world knew about it. In fact, I remember I read a there was like this old clip of a New York Times article from like the nineteen early nineteen forties, late nineteen thirties, something like that, where um, the German government had actually allowed. Uh, journalists to come into the camps to show them how well they were treating everybody there because the way they were selling the camps was oh these are just temporary internment mm -hmm. camps before we transport them to other countries right, right? or to Palestine or or you know um, these are like holding areas and they showed like oh look they have beds they have food we're treating them very well and like we did that recently in our mm -hmm. own ice camps mm -hmm. here in the US and I'm mm -hmm. like wow what fresh hell awaits us when we're finally able to like go in and talk to these people and see what we've actually been doing in these camps. I don't know. I'm not looking forward to it. Um, yeah. I actually went um, to visit uh, one of the camps when I was traveling in Poland. And honestly, the most shocking thing to me, because I knew what to expect in terms of like kind of horror, but was that there were so many people just going there to like take selfies. Like I was being like pushed out of the way for like these crowds of people to take selfies in front of like cases of, you know, people's belongings and like kind of all the displays they have. And that was like truly what was the most shocking. And I was like, it doesn't even feel right for me to like take photo. Like, what am I going to do with photos of a concentration right. camp? Like it's in my mind, but I don't, what do you do with that? And yeah, yeah that was so that's not in the U.S., but that was uh, quite an experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> so but back to the U.S. <laughs> back to the U.S. and all of our homegrown fascists. Um, so all these groups that Kellen and I went through, you know, they were made up of white Protestant men, Sometimes basically. Sometimes Catholic. If we're talking sometimes Catholic, German. yeah, especially the um, foreign, like the immigrant American mm -hmm. ones, like the Italian and the German ones. Um, but they were all racially exclusive, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like the ones currently in charge of our government, right? And they pointed to immigrants and labor unions as the problem, uh, much like the ones currently in charge of our government. The insecurity of of white males has in general has generally been the root cause of domestic terrorism in the U.S. Mm. Um, so it isn't unreasonable to see this particular group, especially when economic anxiety is on the rise, to begin to lash out, right? They they always have, and they're doing it again now. They become more emboldened in their racism and their nationalism, um, especially when it comes to not just like ethnic nationalism, but economic nationalism. Mm. Um, we see it now with Trump's imposition of tariffs on imported goods. Um, we see it when they say buy American, buy American, you know, we are literally seeing it now more openly and even sitting proudly in the Oval Office. In fact, we're so good at fascism. Um, we're so good at it that our famous captain of industry, Henry Ford, and our very own democratic quote, democratic representative government 
uh, government's Jim Crow laws both inspired Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, they inspired him. Like he read Henry Ford's um, pamphlets that eventually became, uh, what was that book he wrote? The International Jew, I think. Um, extremely anti-Semitic, extremely offensive. Um and our Jim Crow laws became the on on the separate but you know not not so equal laws for Jews in Germany. Yeah. Um, Robert Paxton, uh, the fascist scholar, actually makes the argument that because of its views, the Ku Klux Klan might be considered the first fascist group. Uh, I don't know that I agree, but still, that's a hell of an idea. I mean, there was at one point that they did call themselves the Mussolini of America. So there you have it. Um, another thing all of these fascist groups had in common, other than their nativism, their nationalism, and their white supremacy, was that they generally had membership and support across class lines, but the bulk were the middle class. So like, you know, the temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Um, from working class to the bourgeoisie, they had supporters and members, not unlike the fascisti of Italy. Their answer to economic insecurity from all, you know, from Italy to Indiana was that the culture needed to be fixed and that the hierarchies held in place, but without the contaminating forces, mm. you know, immigrants, Catholics, blacks, etc., and that all would be well. Um, the existence of immigrant American fascist groups like the German and Italian Americans formed precluded the use of fascist for the homegrown groups, right? But that's an accident of history more than it is a a historical accuracy. I mean, these groups were fascists. They believed in fascistic things. Um, Had they built enough power to wield it, they would have been a fascist government. you know, they, but they continue to morph and change and find new names for themselves, the latest being alt-right, right? And now we're to talk about using education as a tool for fascism. Mm. Yay. Woohoo. Um, I wanted to start off with actually a little anecdote um, from my own education, which is the high school I went to, which maybe you'll know this if you're also from Philly, but our mascot um, is the Black Panthers, not just Panthers, specifically Black Panthers. Um, and our rival school was the white ghosts. Uh, they were, they were specifically white ghosts that their mascot is like the white ghost. That is so weird. And it actually dates back to when our quarterbacks were members of the black Panthers and their quarterbacks were KKK members. Oh my God. Um, wow. And that wow. they, neither of those mascots have changed. And, but we weren't like brought up knowing that history. It was like in, cause I swam and in the pool, there was a big portrait of like uh, a black Panther, not as in a person, as in just like a large black cat. Um, but then I remember us kind of figuring it out. Like, wait, that's not a real animal. Like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> um, and then we parsed that all together. Wow. Um, yeah, so that is so. At least I went to the good one, but <laughs> but I was asking my parents recently, like, how have the rival district? Um, I was like, how has that not changed? And we don't know the answer, but luckily we don't live there. Um, but actually, really recently, people found some KKK propaganda in that neighborhood, and people from my high school were posting it, being like, oh my God, we can't believe this was so close to home. And I'm like, their mascot is literally the white ghost. Like, (laughs) what do you mean you can't believe that there's like (laughs) propaganda being found? Wow. So anyway, that's my little, the personalist political anecdote. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but yeah, I want to talk more generally about um, how, 
like people use fascist ideologies, including but not just in our current administration, to prevent a more well-rounded education or a well-rounded education at all. Um, as probably at least all of our listeners know, history books have a lot of bullshit. Um, <laughs> and a lot of our school lessons have a lot of bullshit in them. Um, and actually, when I was trying to look this up to find just like more specifics, a lot of things that came up were people claiming there was liberal brainwashing happening in schools, which um, involves a lot of people being taught that um, birth control exists and how to get it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that slavery happened. <gasps> liberal brainwashing. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but I finally found an article by The Nation, which had a good quote that I'm going to read, which said, education, specifically formal education received at schools in controlled and regimented settings is a tool of propaganda. Education mm-hmm. received at schools does not only inflate phobias as Bacon believed through tales, but it also modifies human behavior, influences thought patterns, and shapes the entire worldview of our children, impacting, among other things, their responses to social order. Nation states often rationalize and even at times define their nationalism, uh, have used the system of education to romanticize the past and to manufacture consensus on fabrications, thus merging myth and reality. Mm -hmm. Um, And in 2007, the UN actually spoke out about the um, textbooks being used in the American system, which delves into another problem of the UN wanting control over global education. Um, So not advocating for that. But this particular case was from a mother in Connecticut who complained that her children's textbooks um, were oversimplifying and providing false narratives about slavery. And part of that textbook read, compared to other colonies, Connecticut did not have many slaves, owned one or two slaves. They often cared for and protected them like members of the family. They Mm -hmm. thought they taught them to be Christian and sometimes to read and write. Oof. Um, So you can imagine that there were upset parents that this is the history their children were learning. (laughs) Um, And like, I mean, that's in Connecticut, which comparatively to other states is, you would say, well-educated, perhaps. Like, this isn't just coming out of, you know, more of the like Rust Belt states, which I would say are more notorious or more thought of for having uh, more propaganda in their education. Right. Well, when I was a, when I was in, freshman in high school, uh, my history teacher to the class while I was sitting in there said, Assyrians don't exist anymore. And I had to raise my hand and be like, I'm sitting right here. Oh my God. What am I then? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. um, That must've been tough for you to learn. Yeah. I was like, like, I'm Assyrian. He's like, no. Yeah. He's like, well, no, you can't be Assyrian. That empire ended. I'm like, so what? All the people just disappeared. Uh, He's like, well, what language do you speak? And I was like, Assyrian. (laughs) I speak Assyrian. I do not. I don't speak Arabic. I don't, I don't know Arabic. I wasn't raised in an Arab country. I was raised in an English-speaking one. So I speak Assyrian. And he just looked at me and he goes, "Huh?" And then he went back to teaching. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, also, I, I by choice, which many people, uh, <laughs> it's not many people went to religious school, but I actually chose to go to Hebrew school every week. Um, because I went to a Jewish preschool that was near my parents' house because it was, I don't know, I just ended up going there. But they weren't planning on sending us through, like, religious school. Um, But then I had friends there and just wanted to go. And in, like, first grade, we were all like, we don't believe in God. This is just, like, fun. Uh, But I actually ended up really enjoying it more as just kind of a philosophical, like, talking about these, like, ancient stories. And I do enjoy learning about Jewish culture. 
But there is so much pro-Israel propaganda. Mm. Um, and it's like really hard growing up, like parsing that out from like, you know, there's kind of the trope of like, if you're not pro-Israel, you're anti-Semitic. But it's actually like really hard to be proud of being Jewish and mm. while also being so anti-Israel. And there it like not in terms of in not that that's hard for me to parse out, but it's hard like if I want to engage in like Jewish culture or go to synagogue, like so many of the prayers are just like our homeland of Israel. And so it's really something that I can't really be involved in at this point um, and feel good about it. Hmm. So, but yeah, that, I mean, Hebrew school would be like culture lessons and like, you know, learning to read Hebrew and then just basically talking about like the culture in Israel and like going to Israel. Um, And yeah, I actually, because my family uh, history is complicated, but I also have relatives that live um, in the West Bank and I have visited them and it was uh, like one of the most anxiety ridden experiences uh, that I've ever had. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's like you grow up learning, like, you know, you'll get to Israel and it feels like your home and like, and I know people from like Hebrew school that would like land in Israel and be like, yeah, like everyone was right. It just felt like home. And I got there and was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't feel at home. Yeah. So this romanticizing of, uh, the quote unquote homeland. Assyrians do that a lot too. Yeah. Um, where it's like, oh, if we just go back to our villages and our lands, you know, we'll have perfect lives. And it's like, well, I lived in Iraq for in 2011 for mm-hmm. almost the entire year. And it's always funny to me to hear like Western raised Assyrian women and men going, let's just go back to the homeland. I'm like, you will not survive that conservative. Like you yeah. can't do it. It's too late. Pandora's box is open. (laughs) You're used to your freedom. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, for me, and sounds like that's similar. Like I grew up getting this one kind of like propaganda from the public school I went to. And then this other set from also going to like Hebrew school once a week. So it's just like different information coming from all sides. And it's kind of hard, especially as a child to know like, what's right? What do I believe? What's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Nationalism is a hell of a drug. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, Zoe, you're absolutely right that the education system is built to reinforce, like, nationalism and to, like, bring people into that. Um, and to me, like, the U.S. education system, it's always it's always been really interesting. I went into a history Ph.D. program. Like, my interest in doing that stemmed from my frustration with how history is so frequently taught starting at, like, a young age in our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people, there's, like, a whole variety of different ways that this happens. Um, a lot of people may be familiar with this, but, like, high school history textbook makers, um, even just starting with, like, the books that our kids read, like like the one that you mentioned that said slavery in Connecticut was, like, nice and friendly. Um, mm-hmm. Just one or two per person, you know? <laughs> Um, oh, that's it? <laughs> which is like its whole other thing, because then, you know, if you're a slave under those circumstances, you're living in a much more isolated context. Like, th- I actually, not to get off too much of a, a tangent here, but my the dissertation is actually about how white people rationalized slavery in these places that were supposedly free states 
like while slavery continued, like sort of the ways that they told themselves it was okay. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, you know, slavery was terrible everywhere, but just being like, oh, there aren't that many slaves here or we have small holdings, like also may mean that the people that you're talking about, like can't have families, you know, or if they have families, they're, you know, they, they're separate, they're broken up because nobody can afford to have more than one or two slaves. And like, they're really isolated. And like, that doesn't, none of this means that you're a good slaveholder. There's no such thing. Anyway, <laughs> but there are these textbooks that like, try to push the idea that there are good slaveholders or, you know, call slavery like forced immigration and stuff like that. And one of the reasons is that, so people may be familiar with like how California's emission standards work. Like um, the federal government has a harder time passing like emission standards for cars, but California does generally a better job of that. Not that that's gonna save us from global warming, but like the reason that California's emission standards have such a big impact across the country is that car manufacturers, it's a big market. They wanna be able to sell their cars in California. So they make, they just make their cars to California's standards and that ends up sort of um, effectively raising the standards across the country. High school textbooks work like that, but in the opposite direction where <laughs> Texas's Board of Education ends up setting standards that textbook makers try to meet but that Texas Board of Education is like, what if we just didn't mention the KKK? Mm -hmm. um, and that ends up trickling Jesus. down to the rest of like the, you know, they make, they, there aren't people that are like, all right, well, we'll make a small number of textbooks just for Texas. It ends up being, we're going to make textbooks for the whole country, but by Texas standards. Um, yeah. Wow. And even if I you, also, oh, go sorry. ahead, sorry. I was going to say, I also just heard about Texas that, I'm pretty sure this is Texas, they banned, like, Hillary Clinton's name cannot appear in history books, and I am not in any way advocating for her. However, like, her name should probably be allowed to be included in history. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> I agree. Just Hard learn, agree. Yeah. That she's, like... Uh... Like, kids just won't know that like a woman ever tried to run for president and I once again not advocating for her but just you know people should maybe know it happened yeah right yeah right and there's also I mean so much around that with like you know that specific election and nationalism and fascism and mm -hmm. yeah it's just yeah uh, and I Texas. mean even if you subtract the like Texas textbook thing like this very market-driven chain of events from the equation um, we still have education outside of the textbooks, just the way that it, everything is taught, reinforcing hegemonic nationalistic narratives. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Foucault talked about this. Um, he also, you know, education is a prison because everything's a prison, according to Foucault. But, um, you know, like the fact that we start our day in schools with the Pledge of Allegiance is not an accident. You know, like that oh. is that is a very clear, direct um sort of nationalistic primer that we're teaching children at an extremely young age. Um, and, you know, there's all of these other things um, that schools do to create little Americans and impress on children in the United States what being American is and what it means. Um, and it's really hard, I think, um, to, tr to even figure out all of the ways that that happens because it's it's become it's so ingrained that's what hegemony is it's like it's everywhere um and even if as a 
teacher, you try to unlearn some of that in yourself and try to, you know, work with your own teaching methods. You're still working within this larger U.S. education system that is, by and large, um, nationalistic, you know? Yeah, I actually grew up thinking I didn't like history, that it was just, like, boring. Um, And it turns out I actually like history a lot. I've been reading a lot of history books. I just didn't like having an hour per day mandated of a white man teaching me about white men doing white man things. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And who can yeah, blame that can, you? that can be a bummer. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. There's too many white people talking about white people. Yeah. It's- I will say my U.S. history teacher in high school was a black man, and we actually had a very extensive and accurate education about slavery, which for that, I am thankful of that education. But also my world history and all the other history classes were all taught by white men. Yeah. There you go. Um, Texas should set the standards for Chile and little else just kidding (laughs) shout out to my texas comrades i love you (laughs) great work um so before before like white people get a little too big for their britches (laughs) too late um (laughs) i you know i want to start by sort of revisiting idea that fascism and white supremacy are these intertwined things so um madeline albright had a quote she about defining fascism, where she said, I don't think fascism is an ideology. I think it is a method. It is a system. Um, and we've talked about this in our other episodes about fascism. And uh, I think that's true. I think most fascist scholars would also agree with her. Um, you know, fascism can be the carrier for the multitude, for a multitude of ideologies. And if you were to ask my parents, for example, whether they experienced fascism through white supremacy, they'd say, no, we experienced fascism through Arab supremacy, because being from Iraq, uh, it was an Arab supremacist state. Um, you know, in, in the U.S., fascism is white supremacy. Germany's the same. When we think of white supremacy here, we think fascism. You are a white supremacist, so you're fascist. Um, and it's not unreasonable, because that's how it's expressed in here and in, in in Europe, but um, you know, in in Iraq, their supremacy was Arab, and Assyrian history became Arab history. You know, they literally claimed the history as their own, erasing uh, Assyrians from it completely. Kurds became national enemies unless they joined the Ba'athist party and acquiesced to Arab supremacy and and spoke Arabic and and like you know, agreed that that the default sort of, you know, ethnicity in Iraq was Arab and that everyone else was a sort of guest. And we weren't really supposed to talk about being Assyrian or being Kurdish, at least not as expressed in any sort of nationalistic sentiment, which ultimately is why my parents fled, because my dad was a political activist against that ideology. So, you know, um, I I don't want the fascism series to like just rest on white people having the, you know, monopoly on fascism, because they really, really don't. (laughs) It is an ideology that crosses color lines, crosses religious lines. um, And that's why I think it's so hard to pin down and to identify and to define very exactly. But I think this idea that it it is a process um, is true. And that goes back to all these fascist groups in America actually being fascists, despite the fact that we don't generally uh, think of them that way, like the Klan. The Klan is most certainly fascist, right? They're, they're quite fascistic. They believe in the same things that that we would call other fascists in other countries uh, believe. And when they wield power, they're wielding 
power now a lot, you know, especially with this new regime, the Trump regime, they're they're very emboldened and they're very um, happy that they can come out in public and 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 tout their their whiteness um, and and be white supremacists. They're they're becoming more emboldened, but it certainly isn't exclusive to the United States, and it certainly isn't exclusive to white supremacy. I yeah. the only thing that I would say, and I I absolutely agree that it's not exclusive, um, and I also think that we can if we go back to the interwar period, we can see the way that some fascists in the United States talked about Japan, and sort of in the same way that like neo-fascists today talk about Israel where it's like you know at the end of the day at some point we're gonna have to like exterminate you but right now we see what you're doing and we appreciate it because that's kind of what we want we we, we like your ethno state vibe right um I would say because you mentioned the KKK earlier um I'm not an expert by any means on the modern clan um I do think it's I would say that the the clan of the um, sort of post-Civil War period, the early, the 19th century clan. Um, I'm not sure that I would consider them fascist from like a strictly definitional standpoint um, because I don't know that they were interested. I mean, also, as you mentioned, fascism wasn't really a thing. So mm -hmm. at that point, but that um, they were much, I think that they were less interested in creating like a really powerful state um, and more invested in, uh, they were more anarchistic, I guess, is what I would say, um, in a certain sense, uh, more interested in, in protecting hierarchies outside the like state apparatus, um, than I think fascists tend to be. Um, but things have changed a lot. And I think the modern, uh, I think you're absolutely right that the modern sort of the way that the, you know, the clan to the extent that it exists today and definitely the sort of ideological inheritors of the, the clans movement are, uh, yeah, very much in line with fascism. I think it would yeah. also be interesting to, you know, move uh, into sort of out of a, um, you know, a series, when we move the series, moves move out of um, like a white dominated country. Um, to talk about what fascism looks like in a place like Iraq or, or Japan. It's eerily similar. Like when, like my parents have actually told me, my mom has told me in private, she's like Trump says things that Saddam Hussein used to say, like word for word. Wow. It's, it, 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 it's eerily similar. And I think that's why people are able to define it better because it, it, it the expression and the process of fascism is so similar no matter where it takes root. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think also, Walida, what you were saying, like, is important since we're doing this talking globally because yeah. fascism isn't just like isolated instances. So when you're talking about like the Arab supremacy and like erasure of Assyrians and then, I mean, you know, information and propaganda tra travels and like here you are in the U.S. being taught like, oh, they don't exist anymore. Mm. Right. Like it's not coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. The information is being shared globally. That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that is the goal in the same way that like uh, the way that sort of popular history talks about Native Americans in the United States is like as a relic of the past. Like you wouldn't know mm -hmm. that there are like Native people still living in America today. Yeah. But yeah, it's the erasure. Like, oh, yeah, they history. were here. They're gone. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, it has to be that way. The erasure mm-hmm. of that history has to happen because otherwise we start asking too many questions. Yeah. You know, yeah. where did they go? What happened yeah. to them? Why aren't they here anymore? And you also, you can't, you can't have like something be indigenous, like white supremacist symbols be indigenous to America or Arab supremacist symbols be indigenous to Iraq if you have to deal with the fact that there are actual indigenous people um, to those areas who are still you know, around. Yeah. I mean, recognizing indigenous people would make, give, make America great again, an entirely different meaning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, on that note, (laughs) remember Uh, that there is no war, but class war. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And uh, long live the defeat of fascism again and again and again. Uh, (laughs) Yep. Right on. Well, we, um, <laughs> do we have any, like, you know, inspiring quotes to end on or something? Mm, I'll leave I you. Got, you got any quotes up your sleeve? <laughs> I, um, I do. And you'll hear it in the outro of Perfect. this episode. Cool. <laughs> While we're waiting for that, as always, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are at Season of the Bee. Email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, if you have music you would like to have us play on our show, uh, if you have ideas for topics we should cover, places we should go to talk about fascism, or anything else, really. We like talking about happy things, too. Um, yeah, shout out. Let us know. We have merchandise um, on our website at seasonofthebee.com merch. And as always, you can find us on Patreon. We are gearing up to have some new patreon stuff rolling out as the new year 2019 um dawns upon us so be on the lookout mm-hmm. for that get in while you can i mean you'll always be able to to be a supporter but just sooner rather <laughs> we will than accept later. money at any time you know why not <laughs> um yeah so with all of that being said thanks for listening and uh we'll talk to you guys next week see ya love you thanks. bye bye, bye. But when we begin to think about the significance of freedom from want for the average man, then we know that the revolution of the past 150 years has not been completed, either here in the United States or in any other nation in the world. We know that this revolution cannot stop until freedom from want has been attained. Season of the Bitch.